0: Now, the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And uh, we must always remember that the day of Pentecost is not the day of Pentecost because the Holy Spirit came on that day, but rather the Holy Spirit came on that day because it was the day of Pentecost. It was the same day of Pentecost that was the year before the day of Pentecost and the year before that was the Pentecost all the way back to the origination of the day of Pentecost. So the idea that you can pray down Pentecost and have this as a repeatable event is no more possible than it is to have another day of atonement and have another coming of Christ and sacrificing himself on the cross. So the day was already set. It was part of the whole Levitical feast days, and this was the day, and the Spirit of God came exactly on schedule. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there can be no question that the tongues in this passage, regardless of what you want to argue in 1 Corinthians 14, the tongues in this passage must be known languages because when we compare this with verse 13, it says others mocking said, These, uh, How here we? Verse 11, pardon me, uh, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And others mock said these people are full of new wine, but they heard in their own language. So this is not some ecstatic language, some heavenly language. This was men who were all from one section preaching the gospel in such a way that 16 different dialects heard and understood the gospel that was being preached. Verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now this does not mean that there were Jews and other devout men, but rather there were devout Jews. And so those who heard and those who were involved in this are Jewish people. This is a Jewish event in this particular day. In verse 6, Now this, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these with speak Galileans? And how here we, every man, in his own tongue, wherein we were born. And so the source of their amazement was that they heard these men but they were hearing in their own dialect and not in some strange language. And they were absolutely amazed at this happening. And then it lists the 16 nations or countries from which these people came. And verse 11 says, We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God, and they were all amazed. Now whether this is repeating what has been said before, and it's just the idea of amazement, or whether there were two reasons for their being amazed. And the first reason was that they heard in their own language, but there well might be they were amazed at what they were hearing. And they were hearing the gospel being preached, but it was not being preached in the Hebrew tongue, it was being preached in these Gentile languages. And they might well have been amazed at what they were hearing as well as the fact that they were hearing it from people who apparently couldn't speak this tongue. But verse 13 or verse 12 is the question and the rest of the chapters are going to seek to answer that question. What does this mean? What's the significance of this? What's going on here? What's God saying? What's God doing? And of course in verse 13 you have the mockers and they said, these men are full of new wine so that everybody clearly did not understand even though they understood. And as I mentioned in the first hour, the miracle may well have been on the ear as well as on the tongue. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. In verse 14, Peter stands up. And Peter, standing up with eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, you men of Judah, and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be it known unto you and hearken to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, it seems to me when he says this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, we have to, in some sense, believe that he is saying the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled in front of your eyes. That does not necessarily mean that we can extend that to say that everything in the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled and by further extension, everything in the whole Old Testament is fulfilled. That does not necessarily follow. But it does demand that we look at those events and say they are the evidence that this kingdom that Joel was envisioning is here and these things that he said would happen are happening because the Spirit has been given from the one who is ascended and has been given the right to send the Spirit because he's been given all power and all authority because of his work of redemption. Now the question of tongues, I think, is important and I think it's important to understand what happened this day. Many commentators say that what you have here is the reversal of the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel or Babel, but I think it has to go past that. You would have never had a Jewish congregation seeking the gift of tongues. Why? Because the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost was the proof of the judgment of God. Hold your finger here and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul deals with this question of tongues. I can't find 1 Corinthians 14. And verse 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, that prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of the New Testament, says this is the only place in the whole New Testament where he felt compelled to change the text, and he added the word not. <laughs> he added the word not, that they, but the tongues are a sign not to any, I mean, he took the word not out to them that believe but not to them that believe not. But I think the text means what it says. That the gift of tongues was not a sign to those who believe, but it was a sign to those who believe not. A sign of what? And he quotes from Isaiah, and go back to Isaiah chapter 28, the passage which he is quoting from. Isaiah chapter 28 and 11 and 12. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and so on. This is the text that Paul picks up. With stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing that you may not hear. The other passage that we have here is Deuteronomy 28, verse 48 and 49. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and nakedness, and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. And when the Jewish people woke up and heard people talking in a language they couldn't understand, they knew they were in captivity. And God says, I will teach you and you won't listen, but I will send you into captivity and then you will learn. And at the very day of Pentecost, Israel is in bondage as a nation to Rome and the gift of tongues is the sign of the judgment of God and the casting off of the nation. And now the gospel is not preached in the Hebrew tongue, the sacred tongue, but now the gospel is preached in all the Gentile languages and is going to all of the world. And the essence of the prophecy in Joel is that in this new age, The message is going to be to Jew and Gentile without distinction. In fact, it's going to be whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what Paul is emphasizing where he's saying here that this is a sign of Your unbelief, this is the sign of the judgment of God. And to the Jew who heard the gospel in the Gentile languages on the day of Pentecost, he should have recognized this was the judgment of God upon him. And God is saying, you wouldn't listen when I spoke. I will give you some people and you will listen to their rod. So I say, you would have never had a problem with a a Jewish church seeking the gift of tongues. Am I right on that, Lloyd? Lloyd? He's saying yes. He's a Jewish Christian. He'll collaborate. The events of Pentecost may well signify a reversal of the curse of Babel, but even so it showed the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that the gospel was universal. And the brunt of Joel's prophecy is that in the new age the gospel is going to be universal. One of the greatest things that the Jew could not, would not accept is there is no difference. There is no difference. There was a difference, a very real difference. God had put that nation under covenant, given them blessings. He gave no other nation, gave them promises. He gave no other nation, but they never kept covenant with God. And as a nation, not as an ethnic people, as a nation, they are cast off and I think cast off forever nationally, and the promise is now, not Jew or Gentile, the promise is whoever believes becomes the true Israel of God. Now, it was a clear sign of God's judgment upon Israel for their unbelief, and it was also a sign of opening up the doors to the Gentiles. This is a sign of the outpouring of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then verse 12, as I said before, is the question, what does these things mean? And then there is this carnal answer, and then Peter begins to preach. Now, Peter's explanation of the meaning of the events taking place. And if you look at Appendix C, and this is a... Appendix G, pardon me. This is a note on Acts 2.14. The theme of Peter's sermon at Pentecost is stated in verse 36. And Acts 2.36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It is that Jesus is the Messiah. No message could have been more unwelcome to the Jews who had rejected his messianic claims and crucified him. Peter, therefore, does not announce his theme until he has covered every possible Jewish objection. The point of difficulty with the Jews was the apparent failure of the clear and uh, and repeated prophetic promises of a regathered Israel established in their own land under their covenanted king. Instead of explaining as Rome first taught, followed by some Protestant commentators, hear this you all, Mills, that the covenant and promises were to be fulfilled in the church in a so-called spiritual sense, Peter shows from Psalm 16 that David himself understood that the dead and risen Christ would fulfill the covenant and sit on his throne. And one of the things that is essential to historic dispensationalism, and and the progressive will have to say whether it still is here, I'm not that familiar with this particular view, but it is essential that the Davidic covenant cannot yet be established. It's impossible in that system for that to have taken place because that's the essence of the covenant. He goes on, in precisely the same way, James, Acts 15, 14, met the difficulty, the same difficulty. And, and what this is, is, is taking a passage that uses the phrase after these things and what it does is it makes James to be uttering a prophecy that these things will take place in the future rather than James saying these things have taken place. And that's what some people do with Acts 2 here where it says this really isn't taking place now but it's kind of a preview, a foretaste of what will take place in the future when God regathers and converts Israel. The regathering and the conversion of Israel in their own land is the heart, the foundation of any kind of dispensationalism. Now it seems to me here that Schofield totally misses the point because I don't think that this whole point here is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He certainly is trying to do that, but why does he want to prove that Jesus is the Messiah? because he wants to prove that the messianic kingdom has come. And because Jesus is the Messiah, that's the proof the messianic kingdom is here. That Jesus is the Christ at the Father's right hand is the explanation for all that's taking place in front of them that day which proves the messianic kingdom has come. So to say that Peter's whole point here is to just defend the deity and messiahship of Christ, no, no, what he's proving is the promise made to the fathers are fulfilled in the events that you see taking place in front of you. I think that's what verse 16 is saying here when he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now you notice here we have taken Joel chapter 2 verse 32 and put it alongside of Acts 2.21. It shall come to pass, it shall come to pass, identical, that whosoever shall call, that whosoever shall call, on the name of the Lord, on the name of the Lord, shall be delivered. And Acts 2.21 says, shall be saved. In other words, when, when Joel said delivered, Peter understood that to be, shall be saved. He understood Joel's prophets to be looking forward to the time when the gospel of sovereign grace would go to the Gentile as well as to the Jew. There's nothing in, this, in Acts 2 from beginning to end, at least to me, that shows one ounce of hope for a Jew in the future except faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't show any kind of a regathering, any kind of a land promise. If, if that's in the New Testament, it's not in Acts chapter 2. Here, Peter is spiritualizing Joel's promise. Now, one of the things that, that I get really amazed at with, with some dispensations is they insist that you dare not spiritualize a promise. But when they come to the New Testament and an apostle says this is that, Then they say, well, he really doesn't mean that. He only means it's a type of that and he will not spiritualize when the New Testament itself spiritualizes. And it's my contention that the New Testament always spiritualizes the kingdom. Now, that's debatable. Let's go on. This is that must be taken literally regardless of whether I see how it is possible or not. And by that I mean I can't go back to the book of Joel and say, here's the sun, here's this, here's this. Now, unless you can go over here and show me where each one of those things have been literally fulfilled, then then the prophecy isn't fulfilled. That's getting my hermeneutic out of the Old Testament rather than out of the New. If a prophet in the New Testament says, this is that, whether I understand how this is that makes no difference. If he says this is that, then that can't be this. This has to be that. Number two, it shall come to the pass, <laughs> quiet, it shall come to pass in the last days must refer to the days in which we now live. And all the way through the Old Testament, you constantly find in the last days, in that day, in the last days, in that day, over and over again, and every reference that would pick that up at the new will always refer to the times in which we live as far as the blessings of the kingdom and it spiritualizes it. The deliverance has to be present salvation and not future Israelite's political freedom. Who would be delivered has nothing to do with your nationality because this covenant in Joel, this promise in Joel, was equally to the Gentiles as well as it was to the Jews, and that's the whole point of the passage, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. God loved the world. The gospel age, or the messianic kingdom, has come. Joel was prophesying about the gospel. In verse 22 through 24, you men of Israel hear these words. And he shows how that Jesus has all the credentials. And this is addressed to these Jews. He has all the credentials to prove he's the Messiah. But he's not just proving that, he's proving that the same God who delivered him is the same God who raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand and gave him all power and all authority. And the first act or the first administration of that power was the sending of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In verses 25 through 31, Peter then goes to David. David speaketh concerning him, verse 25 I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rest, did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope. David went into the tomb with hope. What was his hope? What was his expectation? What was he sure that God had promised to him and that he could count on despite the fact that he knows he's going to go into the grave? Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. For thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. And he's quoting directly from the song. And it's very obvious that David realized he was talking about more than himself when he referred to the Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. How did David understand those words? And then Peter tells us in verse 29, Men and brethren, Let me freely speak unto you of the Patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Now why does he specifically call attention to the fact that right over there is David's sepulcher and he's in it? Well if you remember in 1 Chronicles 17 when we read and also in 2 Samuel when we read after thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, while you sleep with your fathers, I will raise up your seed to sit on your throne. The Davidic covenant promised that it was while David was in the tomb that his son would be exalted to the throne. There's no possible way you can get the Davidic throne established after the resurrection of David. It's specifically, categorically, while you sleep with your fathers. And so Peter says, you know exactly what God promised to David, that while he slept with his fathers, he would raise up his son to sit in his throne. He's over there in that tomb, and God has done exactly what he said. Go on. Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of what? He did not speak of a millennial reign. He did not speak of anything but the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father with power. David's hope in that passage in 2 Samuel 7, has nothing to do with an earthly reign of Christ or after a resurrection of David. That passage has to do with the days in which we live. That passage has been fulfilled. And the promise to David to raise up his seed, to sit on his throne, is fulfilled in the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter understood that God's covenant with David was thus fulfilled. In Psalm 16, if you go back there for just a moment, this is the section from which Peter quotes. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. And this is the footnote that Schofield has, my flesh shall rest in hope. The 16th Psalm is a prediction of the resurrection of the king. As a prophet, David understood that not at his first advent, but at some subsequent time to his death and resurrection, Messiah would assume the Davidic throne. And I dare you to try to get that out of Acts 2. That's not what he's saying in Acts 2. He is not saying that he's going to be at a later date assume this Davidic throne. He's saying God promised to do this while David slept with his fathers. And he's saying he's seeing this spake of the resurrection. And that's why the soul of our blessed Lord was not left in the tomb, but he was raised, ascended to glory, and given all power and all authority. Now, again, we have compared <coughs> the passage And the left passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the passage on the right is from the book of Acts chapter 2. And notice how Peter is interpreting an Old Testament prophecy that has to do with the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom that is promised in the Old Testament over and over again. How does Peter understand it? Look at the comparison. Let me freely speak unto the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. And 2 Samuel says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt go to sleep with thy fathers. That's the time when the kingdom is going to be set up. That's the time when he's going to sit on David's throne. All right? Being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. And Peter substitutes the word Christ for the word seed, so that we know that seed is Christ and not David himself, but is David's greater son. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And how does Peter understand establish his kingdom? He says, I will raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this spake of the resurrection. Does the resurrection and the ascension establish Christ on the throne that was promised to David at the time that David is sleeping with the fathers? Now, Acts 2, Peter applies this. And his whole point here is not to establish the messiahship of Christ, but only to establish that because he is the messiah, it proves the messianic kingdom has come. That's his whole point in his argument. What you see is the proof that the kingdom has come. Acts chapter 2, verse 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, and I say again, that was the heart of the Old Testament, and Randy will cover this tomorrow, the heart of the New Covenant promise is the gift of the Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit cannot take place until Christ is dead and buried and raised and ascended to heaven. Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens. He's over there in that tomb. But he said himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou in my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, that all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Dr. Kenneth Good was a good friend of mine, and he was a dear brother beloved of the Lord, and I esteemed him highly. He was also a convinced dispensationalist. And we would talk about this passage, and he would smile, and he would say, Jesus is indeed Lord of the church. But he's king of Israel. (laughs) This has nothing to do with Israel. And he just dismissed it like that. I said, come on, you can't do that. But he did. (laughs) Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? Now these are unbelievers. Is that right? These are unbelievers asking what they must do to be saved. Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Can you imagine how anybody can make the gospel promise to unbelievers to be a promise to believers and their children? This is the key text of our paedo-baptist brethren. The promise. Is to you and to your children. And we put that little water on his head. Don't get upset about it, because that little water is going to hurt his head any other time. <laughs> but this is the text. That has nothing to do with it. These people are unbelievers. And the promise is not the promise made to Abraham and his seed, the promise is the promise in Joel. And that promise is the gospel is to whoever believes. It's to you and if you believe you'll be saved. The promise is to your children. If they believe they'll be saved. In fact, the same promise is to the pagan, to those who are far off. That kid born in a covenant home has no more promise than the pagan across the seas, according to this text. Is that right? Oh, and then the rest of the verse really is something. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call, And that phrase has to govern all the rest of the sentence. Even as many as he shall call from among you, from among your children, (laughs) from among the pagans afar off. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying that the essence of the covenant, the essence of the promise in Joel is the universality of the offer of the gospel. No longer Jew and Gentile. It is whosoever believeth they will be saved. And with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. Well, that's my understanding of the book of Acts chapter 2 and how it serves as a bridge. Now, we've asked somebody who doesn't agree with me to have a uh, short response, critical response. And he has been instructed to have no inhibitions. but to be as brutal as he can be, to pick holes in what we've said, and then there'll be a chance for you to enter into the discussion. I say that beforehand so that you don't, know, that you don't think that he's mad at me. We are good friends. I'll let you know whether we will be later on in the future. <laughs> David, come on.
1: payback time for Romans 7, folks.
2: When we come time for the discussion, if you want
0: to ask a question, you're going to have to come up here because we want to get it on tape.
1: When John told me to be merciless in my criticism He said, don't call me any names. I said, well, does that mean I can't call you John and brother? (laughs) And uh, let me say that I appreciate so much of what brother John has said. May I say that at the outset? And in saying that, may I say that in so many points, I agree with his exposition of Acts chapter 2. There's some minor points that I want us to look at in which I disagree, uh, but nevertheless, My problems are with his introduction and his conclusions. Let me ask you, first of all, to think with me about one of the major problems I have with his introduction. If you'll go back with me to page one of his sheet. Prophetic interpretation is a matter of hermeneutics stated at the outset. The basic question under those initial four points The basic question is, where do we get our hermeneutical principles? And then four things are given in the way of bases for our hermeneutic. The fourth gives this response, from the apostolic method of interpreting the Old Testament promises, especially kingdom passages. I would insert, before we get to number four, that it would be appropriate to say that number four should properly be that from which the apostolic Method is drawn. How is it the apostles approach the Old Testament? Their method is not their own. Their method is drawn from that of the Lord Jesus. And I believe if we fail to understand that, we will miss why Peter approaches Joel chapter 2 as he does. The apostles built on the hermeneutic of the Lord Jesus that's presented in the gospel and that is the now and the not yet of the kingdom. There is that definite sense that the Lord Jesus Christ preached the presence of the kingdom now. But there is as well that definite sense of the kingdom future that we cannot escape if we would be faithful to the words of Christ. And this foundation provided the apostolic method for dealing with the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus, who announced in Matthew four seventeen, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand of presence of the kingdom right now also taught us to pray in Matthew 16 thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven he taught that the mysteries of the kingdom relate to what the kingdom is likened to right now in Matthew 13 but in Luke 19 as he was about to go to Jerusalem and there were those who looked for the kingdom of God that it should appear immediately he gave a parable about a man who went to receive a kingdom and when he'd been gone a long time, having received the kingdom, he came back and he judged his servants. That now and not yet that informs the teaching of Christ is that on which the apostles founded their method. If we don't appreciate that, then we will see Peter as absolutely spiritualizing Acts chapter 2, or Joel chapter 2, in his sermon. If, though, we appreciate the hermeneutic that Christ gave of the now and the not yet, We will see Peter is saying there is a present aspect of Joel's fulfillment, but that does not invalidate the future aspect. And that, I believe, is where John's exposition failed to deal fully with all of the New Testament data, particularly where did the apostles derive their method for approaching the Old Testament prophecies, and that was the teaching of Christ in the now and the not yet. Now that's my major I guess criticism and uh, I'm not saying that John didn't address that in some measure but it seems to me that once we approach that and pardon me let me not say it seems to me because once we approach that, once we take that, then we have not only a basis for seeing Joel too having a present aspect of fulfillment but also a future aspect. Now there are other things I could say in the way of other questions, but um, basically but summarize it well. For those of you who received the little praise for the conference and have it with you, basic questions for all speakers. Number one, is the kingdom an earthly physical reign of Christ in the future, or is it a spiritual reign in the church in the present? In answer to that, against the teaching of our Lord, I would say yes. Okay? And that I believe is where approaching the Old Testament prophets as our Lord Jesus did will help us. Another thing in the way of John's exposition of Acts 2, and this is the major difference I have, and I'd ask you to turn there, relates to the uh, approach to the words of Psalm 16 that John took. In Acts chapter 2, having quoted the words of Psalm 16, and I would dissent a little bit from John in saying this was not David's hope, as it's mentioned in verse 26, my flesh shall rest in hope. David according to these words is speaking these verses prophetically or predictively. He is speaking them as a prophet who puts these lips literally on the lips of, the, puts these words on the lips of the Messiah. And this is the Lord Jesus' own hope as his body lay in the grave, that it wouldn't lay moldering in the grave. and that quote from Psalm 16 is followed by, Dave, by the words of Peter in uh, verse 29 of Acts 2, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. I disagree with John in his basic assertion that what Peter wants to say is, while your body's in the tomb, going back to 2 Samuel. Now that might be a subsidiary point, but Peter's basic point is Psalm 16 can't apply to David because David's body still with us. And after a thousand years, it's got to be decomposed. So his flesh has seen corruption. That's the basic point. He moves from that to say, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. There's the mention of the Davidic covenant that John has referred to. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection. Now, John said at that point that this applies to the Davidic covenant and the D- Davidic kingship. But Peter does not say that. For if you read his words, he says, He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. What? That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. In other words, there's a return to the literal words of Psalm 16. What's that taking us back to? Well, basically, as I understand Peter's words is he's saying, if David's going to have a descendant who sits on his throne forever, then if his body's in the grave, he can't occupy that throne. So he must be raised from the dead. He must be not permitted to see corruption. And that in fact is what happened with our Lord. I believe that's a more literal understanding and a closer and more faithful to the words of Psalm 16 understanding of what Peter's sermon says. I don't disagree with John in understanding the Davidic kingdom to have a present aspect, though. The reason I don't, again, is because I go back to the hermeneutic of Christ. What is that? Now and not yet. If we have a present aspect of the Davidic kingdom that could be found in Acts chapter 2, does that forbid a future aspect of the Davidic kingdom that will include a literal reign on earth in which Israel may figure prominently? I don't believe it does. And if we want to do that, we have to go back to the teaching of Christ in the Gospels. Does Jesus speak of a future hope for Israel? Well, I believe if you look at his words, you'll find that he does. He speaks of Israel recognizing him and seeing him and saying, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord, but not in the way they did at his triumphal entry. When one week they said, Hosanna, the next week they said, Crucify. There's going to be a reception by him. I don't know if eight minutes is gone. Okay, thank you for your time. Fred says I have five left. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity.
0: OK, let me quickly respond to the, what he said, and then we will open it up for uh, questions from anybody. And uh, let me get my notes here. The uh, first point was about the, the now, not yet, in the hermeneutic of our Lord. That may or may not be. My whole point was that if it is, there is not a word of it in Acts 2. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that if you read Acts 2 from beginning to end, there is not a single word or intimation of any kind of a future earthly kingdom for the Jewish nation. That's not in Acts 2. That was my whole point. And uh, the idea of Joel... Uh, I mentioned and, and would reiterate that because Peter is saying that the events on the day of Pentecost fulfilled those verses in Joel, and I repeat, that does not mean that everything else in Joel is fulfilled. That doesn't mean that at all. There can be an earthly millennium. That's not what we were saying in the book of Joel. What we're saying is that Joel is saying this is that which was spoken of by the prophet. There is nothing in Acts 2 to suggest that there is something in the future. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that the hermeneutic of the apostle Peter was to say this is fulfilled. He doesn't extend it all and say everything is fulfilled, but nowhere does he offer something for the future. That's all that I was meant to say and in reference to verse 30 and 31, where he's seeing this before spake of the resurrection. And it is true that one of David's points and one of Peter's points here is to prove that if Christ is going to sit on David's throne, he cannot rot in the grave, therefore he has to be raised from the dead. But I don't think that fulfills the words that Peter says because in verse 31, he says, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. But verse 30 specifically says that he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this spake of the resurrection. And to put any kind of an interval of time between the resurrection of Christ and his assuming in any sense this Davidic throne in here, I think, is is not in the language. I think if you read this, I think that he's saying this fulfills in the resurrection and he was raised in order that he might assume the throne, which he has now, and the proof that he is on the throne is the events that you see today. So I would, I would offer that. And I would offer this also, and I, I say this most seriously, uh, oftentimes people will uh, ask me what I really believe, and I say I honestly don't know. I am not an all-meal. I have never been an all because where does the Bible teach there will not be a millennium? But I'm not a pre Uh when, when when I read some of what the all-meal says, I agree with it. When I read the New Testament, it seems to me that the uniform message is exactly that of the book of Acts, that the kingdom is here. And, and I see nothing in the New Testament that makes me look for an earthly kingdom. And you say, do you believe there will be an earthly millennium? And I say, no. And you say, will you be surprised if there is one? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> because I see there's some intimations that there can be a possibility. In other words, to, to say that you're not a premium means that there is no millennium. I don't know. And I... I think that I stand today in relation to the second coming of Christ exactly where the Old Testament prophets did in the first coming. He had a promise. And then you have the event. And then you have the whole New Testament, which is the interpretation of that event. All we have is the prophecy. We don't have the event. And we are arguing about the interpretation of the event that hasn't taken place. And and how confused were many of the Jews. John the Baptist, or in the Gospel of John, where it says, There standeth one among you whom you know not. And the Lord Jesus walked along the the path, and there was a guy, Gamaliel, who had his charts. And he looked at Jesus and said, He don't fit the charts. You can't be the Messiah. And they garbled it all up. So there well may be a millennium. And if there is, and my friend, Phil Bomberger, he will be so sanctified he won't even want to say on the way up, I told you so. <laughs> My problem with the premill is that he ties up the very inspiration and veracity of God with an earthly millennium. If there is no millennium with the Jews at the head of the nations, God is not faithful to his covenant. No, he has fulfilled his covenant. And I refuse to be an armill—I mean a premill—on that basis, because it makes it necessary to the fulfillment of God's oath. And I say God's oath is fulfilled. And on the other hand, the the, the he says there can't be a millennium. I say no, no, there well might be one. Don't be too sure. See, I come to Acts one Will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And our Lord did not rebuke them. And that's after the resurrection, after they have the Holy Ghost. Is that right? These were the people who walked with Christ for three years and heard his hermeneutic. <laughs> they had 40 days in which they were instructed in the kingdom of God from this Lord. When, 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 you remember when, when he said to Philip, have I been so long time with you and yet you still don't understand? And yet there's not an ounce of rebuke in his response to them. Is that right? I see, that's not enough to make me a pre-mill, but it's more than enough to keep me from being an (laughs) all-mill. It's more than enough to make me say, the Bible says there won't be, no, 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 no. There's room in there. Now, I I don't think you have to move into that room, (laughs) but I don't think you can close and lock the door. That's all I'm saying. All right. Do you have any other questions? We want you to have a chance. No questions. No questions? Let's go home. You got to come up here. I suspect that man in Romans 7 had something to do with Larkin's charge. I don't know how, but he did. (laughs) For you who are here and weren't here last year, one of the papers we had was Romans chapter 7. And who is the man in Romans chapter 7? And it went into some lengthy discussions. And it was not resolved. I guess we don't have any questions. You have to, you have to come up here if you're gonna put on the mic.
3: I have a sincere question on hermeneutics, especially when it comes to David used the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I've come to think that the uh, Lord's Prayer, oh, Matthew 6 or Luke 11, is something which is of a, of a temporary nature until the kingdom come. Uh, when thou pray, Our oh, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on, in heaven as it is on earth, or on, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, forgive us our sins and so forth like that. That uh, hermeneutically, I look at this as something which the Lord Jesus taught because the time had not yet come. Uh, take also the 13th verse there when he talks about the impotune man and then he comes to 13 if then ye being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him and these things had not yet come so I I I have to sincerely ask that in the uh, in the Gospels which are Galatians 4 4 made under the law as Christ was that he had many things to say that would teach about what was going to happen in the future, but which were not really uh, applicable to us at this present time. Uh, like he told the, um, the leper, go, uh, go to the elders, go to the priests, offer up the sacrifice." We wouldn't do those things. So I think that there are many things which the Lord Jesus Christ said, uh, thinking of hermeneutics, that cannot be applied to us at this time, because at that time they were yet future, and now they're here.
1: Not intended to be a swipe, Don, but you know that's the same thing that Arthur Pink got mad at dispensationalists about, sectioning up the Gospels and taking Christ's saying and saying they relate only to the age of His disciples at that time. Uh, I don't want to, but but that but that's exactly what's happening, and you know that's something that dispensationalists have really been licked about. I would ask, though, in that regard. What about Luke nineteen eleven, uh where the Lord Jesus tells a parable and Luke introduces it in this way, Luke nineteen eleven. And as they heard these things he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and I wonder what that means. Uh, and because they thought that the king I mean Jerusalem. That was free. <coughs> <laughs> anyway, what did it mean in Joel two? I guess it means something different in Luke nineteen eleven. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should appear immediately. And then he said. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. And to return. And we know the story of the pounds. But as the pounds uh, are given out. uh, There is a rejection of the king. And in verse 15 we read. And it came to pass that when he was returned having received the kingdom. Then he commanded these servants to be called unto him. The idea of the kingdom being received is there but also the idea of the kingdom not appearing immediately is the very purpose for which the parable was told so we've got again I think the this now and not yet we have to deal with and so there's that aspect of futurity to the kingdom also Luke 19 addresses that just before the passion and the ascension of Christ and uh, that would be what I'd base it on and I believe that gives bite to praying still as disciples of Christ Matthew 6:10. Thy kingdom come. And what does that mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I
0: don't know. You, you got a word, brother? Oh, yeah, no. The the one of the first rules, and I say this seriously, it is you cannot build a solid theological point on the interpretation of a parable. And Luke nineteen, whatever it means, cannot be used to justify a whole theological concept, especially as a foundational point.
1: I don't think we're using it in that way. I think we are including it among other passages, but then when we have an inspired comment by Dr. Luke, given of the Holy Spirit as to why this parable was told, we have a direct indication as to what its purpose is. There were those who thought the kingdom of God was going to immediately appear, and Dr. Luke tells us that, and this is the purpose for which this parable is expressly told.
0: And we have, the, but we have also you have the, the giving of the kingdom to another nation. The the total concept of this nation as a nation, totally, so so that dispensationalism, and historic premillennialism has to be separated here, because the idea in the New Testament of the Jewish nation, and the promises of God to a particular nation with all of those things involved. In 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 Matthew chapter twenty one you have the kingdom taken away. And regardless of what you have here, you cannot get a Jewish concept of a future kingdom, even into this passage. And and, and my my whole point has been we do not have in the New Testament a instance, it seems to me, of promising of the land and the reinstitution of the people and the tabernacle and any of those things in the New Testament Scriptures. That's my whole point. Yes, you were going to say what? I'll respond to
1: that real quick? Yes. Uh, first of all, Peter's-
0: Peter says nothing about what you just said
1: in Acts chapter 2. No. <laughs> that was no. a joke, y'all. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but also in, in... I'm kidding, your brother. That's a joke. Matthew no. 9, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. 28... Uh, we, we could t- see some indication of a uh, future for Israel and of the kingdom there in regard to uh, the regeneration. Christ speaks of those who had followed him in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. You also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, uh, I guess it's possible that Israel doesn't mean Israel here just like Jerusalem didn't mean Jerusalem in Luke 19.11. Uh, the, the future of the throne of glory is seen over there in Matthew 25, a little later at the coming of Christ, according to Matthew twenty five thirty one.
0: So, But, but all, all of this, th- th- this is like arguing with evolution and different points of evolution. All I'm saying is that when the New Testament scriptures take and interpret an Old Testament scripture and that Old Testament scripture is talking about the kingdom, the New Testament scriptures always spiritualize it. That's, what I, that's, that's my whole point. And that the hermeneutic of the apostles of the New Testament in interpreting kingdom prophecy in the Old Testament is to spiritualize it. That's my point. What were you going to say back there? Here, here's a question right here. We don't want to have...
4: <laughs>
1: don't want to stack the deck, huh? <laughs> I'm not very smart. Join the club.
4: As you'll find out. But in 2 Peter 3, when the Lord comes back, I'm wondering where you're going to have a millennium. In verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, I take that as the second coming, will come as the thief in the night, in the which, now if I understand English, that's in that day, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, if that happens in the day that he comes back, I don't think there's going to be a millennium. Not after he comes, Not after he comes no. I can't see it. Somebody explain it to me. And
0: I'm glad. I'm glad all these questions nobody's asking me
1: any. Well, I kind of thought it would go this way, John. because everybody was amening you, and there was a deathly silence when I got up. Uh, I think there are two things to be said in response to your observations. The first is, the day of the Lord is capable of being understood as more than one 24-hour day. That's it, We find it beginning in part with the events Peter says this is that, okay? Those, in some measure, can be called Day of the Lord. Other Old Testament prophecies similarly. The Day of the Lord encompasses a number of events in the Old Testament that include judgment on the nations. That day extends much wider. Another thing is, and I think this is properly the way to understand the events of 2 Peter 3, that they began prior to the millennium. The, the, the change of the earth, the restoration, the cl- conflagration that you've cited in Second Peter 3, that that takes place when Christ returns and the earth is renewed in preparation for his reign on earth. And that being true, uh, we have then what synchronizes with a number of other scriptures, particularly even the chronology of revelation. When does the heaven flee, flee away? When does the earth experience all the turmoil that takes place at the time of Christ's return. Uh, this is a view that was held by some premillenarians. If any of you are familiar with the work of George Peters, the theocratic kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, three-volume work, massive work dealing with the prophecies, he held to that. Basically, then the new heavens and new earth began. Robert Duncan Colburn, a, mas- a masterful book on uh, Daniel and premillennialism, Daniel and the Latter Days, holds that same view.
3: Two Question for you.
0: These two fellows over here standing up. We don't want to get tired. Thank you, I'm David Painter. Um, just a
5: uh, quick response on that Second Peter passage, if you don't mind. I think you'd have a very difficult time making the day of the Lord to be an extended period of time, if that's what you were saying there. Uh, if you read the, uh, I think if you read the context there and what what he's talking about it. I don't think there's any doubt that, there, that he's talking about a, uh, a judgment that ends all things at, at this point. I, I, it's just a, uh, my opinion on that. But um, I guess, it's kind of a question for John. Uh, I guess and um, I, David is it? Yeah. Um, it, is uh, what you might think. <laughs> I know that's my first name, too. (laughs) I was just wondering what you think the significance, perhaps, to this discussion uh, that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 might play. Because um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 seems to me to be clearly an eschatological chapter. And if it's an eschatological chapter, when you finally get to verse 20, verse 20 says, but now is Christ. So I think there certainly is a now aspect to the kingdom, and I don't think John was arguing against that. Uh, If I uh, understood, I don't want to put words in John's mouth. Is that right, John? You weren't arguing against that there's a now uh, relevance to the kingdom. That's what you were arguing, right? Fifth
0: Amendment. Go ahead.
5: (laughs) And then... um, But verse 20 is now, and then when you get to verse 24, of course, it says, then cometh the end. So I think there certainly is a uh, now, there certainly is an end, but if you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it doesn't seem to me that there's any interlude in between. Uh, There is a now, Uh, but what is next? I think it's the end.
1: If you'll notice 1 Corinthians 15, the text to which our brother David referred, it speaks of the fact that now Christ is raised from the dead. It speaks in verse 23 that every man in his own order shall be raised, made alive, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ his coming, then cometh the end. I understand your point. Basically, you're saying that because the, those that are Christ are raised is coming, then comes the end means that the end's got to follow immediately after the raising of those who are his that is coming. Okay. The problem I find with that is the Greek terms that are used in First Corinthians 15 for then, while they are sequential, they are not necessarily immediate. First uh, Corinthians 15... I'm trying to make sure I've got the right Greek terms here. The word for then, those that are Christ that is coming, is epita. The word then, the end, in verse 24, is eta. Those words are synonymous if you'll go back and look at the order of the resurrection appearances in your Greek text. After Christ appeared to Cephas, it says eta, the twelve, epita. Above five hundred brethren, Epeta James, Eta the all the apostles. Those words are synonymous, in other words. If that's true, then how much of a gap has there been between Christ's resurrection, the first fruits, and those that are Christ that is coming? We know at least two thousand years. So there's no problem with an interval between Christ coming and the end. Given the, given the language, epita and eta. I, 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 I think you must look at the words that are used and again re- reference them to the most immediate context of the appearances and how those words are interchangeable. A 2,000 year gap from the coming to the resurrection is coming.
0: Okay, we... we uh, one of the things we, we wanted to do was try to keep the discussions on first on the material that was discussed instead of just going every place. Uh, in the passage in First Corinthians 15 uh, Schofield has a footnote and it's one of the notes that are on your notes. It's uh, number B. Appendix B is the footnote in verse 24, then come the end when he shall he delivered up the kingdom to God even the Father. And you'll notice it says this is the summary of the doctrine of the kingdom in the New Testament. And see, kingdom in the Old Testament, that's the footnote that you have there. Not the footnote, but the appendix A. The promise of the kingdom to David and his seed, as described in the prophets, 2 Samuel 7, 8, 17, that's what we looked at, enters the New Testament absolutely unchanged. If it doesn't, then you have to establish it on New Testament grounds. And my my whole point is it does not enter into the New Testament unchanged. That's how covenant theology gets the Sabbath and its circumcision into the New Testament. My contention is that the New Testament totally spiritualizes the land There's not a single reference in the New Testament to Israel inheriting the land. The two places where the land is mentioned, it spiritualizes it. One is Hebrews chapter 11. While Abraham was in the land of promise, he looked for a city whose maker and builder was God. And so when we say, we have this kingdom, and we have this promise, and we have this messianic kingdom, this throne of David, and we have all of this promised. My whole contention is that the New Testament says those things have been fulfilled, period. If you're going to reestablish any of those things, you're going to have to do it with the New Testament text of Scripture. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yes?
2: I just kind of want to make a, a little bit of an academic-type point. Um, myself, coming out of dispensationalism and having been schooled from the classical point of dispensationalism, having been a Darbyite and having uh, read most of J.N. Darby's writings, is probably probably most of you realize that Schofield uh, received most of Darby's materials and he uh, extrapolated on what Darby had already uh, fathered much earlier than he did. But I just want to make this point, and this does refer, John, to the material that you've been covering, The Darby and the brethren, for instance, would look at Acts chapter 2, verse 14 and following, that it only is a type of what was to come and, in, and was in no way actualized in the experience that was occurring on the day of Pentecost. And that's typical of the way they would understand Old Testament prophecies. For instance, they would not believe that the new covenant is even established with the church presently because the church is not the object of prophecy of the Old Testament. Israel, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and so on, not the church. The church is supposedly the mystery which was hid in God, in ages past, and was not revealed in the corpus of Old Testament scriptures. So I just wanted to make that point because uh, historical, traditional, classical dispensationalism does not see the church as being the recipient of Old Testament prophecy. Since it's a mysterious time period and and, and it's a mystical body that was not referred to in Old Testament prophecy, Therefore, prophecies could not apply to it. But hearing what David said makes me realize, I I take David as a a moderate type of dispensationalist, and there's concession, at least, by someone who would classify himself as a dispensationalist, and this seems to be the direction that they're moving in from the classical to the new Schofield type of uh, reference Bible dispensationalism, and now they've advanced to, many have, I should say, to what they call... uh, progressive dispensationalism and maybe you might be more uh, acquainted with that and that might be more your, your particular persuasion and I, 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 I can identify with that to some degree to just at least admit, and this is what I want to say, to admit that there's the already but not yet is somewhat of a concession that prophecies are in some way being fulfilled in the church age and that is a recognition that there's a spiritualization of Old Testament prophecies being actualized in the current church age.
0: Uh, there's a couple of books that have recently come out. One is called Progressive Dispensationalism. It's written by a professor from uh, Dallas. It was reviewed by the president of Reformed Seminary and he said this is not your father's Oldsmobile. <laughs> There, there, is no, there is no question that both covenant theologians and dispensationalists have radically modified the things they believe. The dispensationalism that I was taught was the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven was different. The gospel of Matthew wasn't for the church and so on and so on. There are very few dispensationalists today who believe that. There are some, and there are some who are sick at what is happening in Dallas because they think they've gone liberal when they have gone into progressive dispensationalism. So, the thing that has brought people together are the doctrines of grace, and and that's been predominant, and that's the thing that has drawn us together, and that's the thing that has enabled us to maintain friendship. David uh, used to live right near me, and Randy Seaver used to live right near me, and Randy and Fred and I got together on occasions, and it was very delightful times. And we learned from each other, uh, and we were helped by each other. So. Today, there is not the stereotype that there used to be. And the one thing I wanted to raise up is having said everything that Gary said. By the way, he has a booklet coming out. We have it about half ready on his own personal testimony, which is excellent. uh, When he goes into his view of hermeneutics. But uh, what, what what, I forgot what I was going to say. I'm getting old. (laughs) What was I going to say? That's awful. (laughs) I don't know, it's gone. You have a question? This will be the last one, I think.
4: Sure, this is just a question of perhaps clarity. You um, use the terms uh, spiritualized, of course, but you also use the term naturalized, and I understood it to mean um, that the premillennial position naturalizes certain texts, and I just would like for you to clarify, speak upon that a little bit, because I've heard the term naturalizing text. Um, is not the text natural? In other words, I've never thought of premillennialist literalists doing anything to it as much as reading what would be the natural text. So could you elaborate?
0: When, When you take Genesis 3.15, and if you say to me, has that been literally fulfilled, do you mean really, truly, actually fulfilled, then we will all say yes. And see the word literal has a tendency to, to be in some people's minds mean that the opposite of a literal is a spiritual. But to other people, the opposite of a literal is not really. It, it's, it's not true. it's not actual. And when I so say we say we literally took place mean it actually took place. And you see, the amil believes that it actually took place. But the dispensationalists insists it has to be in natural language. And the amil says it can be in spiritual language and be just as literal as is the natural. You understand what I'm saying?
5: The
4: of would
0: be yeah, yeah. In other words, are we talking about figurative and natural, or are we talking about something being actually, literally, really true? And don't confuse those two, because we take the, the, the Bible just as literally as anybody, but we have a hermeneutic when we approach it. That's what we're saying. Because oftentimes all mills are accused of, of literalizing, I mean, accused of, of spiritualizing the Scriptures to the place that it isn't true. And dispensationalists are accused of carnalizing the scriptures to the place there's no spiritual life in them. And I think both of those accusations are really not fair. And if you have listened to David last year when he's here, listen to David here, and and even though he is a committed dispensationalist, I think you'll get the idea that he's not a knucklehead. And if you really think he is, then get in a one-on-one argument with him. So we, we are not talking about people who don't have a brain in their head. We're talking about people who love the scriptures. And today, now I know what I want to say. Today, because of the doctrines of grace being paramount, it is bringing people together. And, and it's getting people who will listen to each other. And, and all of a sudden, there are dispensationalists who say, wait a minute. And there are dispensationalists who are thoroughly, thoroughly Calvinistic. But that's causing them to rethink dispensationalism. It is also causing many covenant theologians to rethink covenant theology. And as a result, there, there's not a synthesis, because that would be a hybrid that would be worse than, than either of the ones by themselves. But there is developing a biblical theology that isn't, that isn't locked into a system. And, and one of the reasons I left dispensationalism was because I was always in between the text. And I was always reading this can't mean this because of this. And then I came over into covenant theology and I get the same thing. And and I would much rather say this is what the text says if I can't fit it into my system too bad. I'll just have to wait and get some more light on it. And that's really the purpose of this conference is to get some more light from each other and to challenge and be challenged. And that's what we want to do. Well, I hope you had a good time. I did. And David is still my friend. Let's have a word of prayer before we go. Our Father, we're grateful for your manifold mercies to us. We thank you ever opened our hearts with your truth. We look back through our life, And there are things that we taught and we were sure as the air we breathed and later on we saw we were wrong. If we know our hearts, we love you and we love you because you first loved us and we want to please you because everything we have we owe to your grace. We pray that doing these times together we would learn from each other and that you would open our minds and expose us to your truth. if there are things that we've held and held dearly, and yet we cannot back them up with Scripture, help us to lay them aside. Help us to never be afraid of truth or where truth will lead us. For Christ's sake, bless us here. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.